We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order to study the life and teachings and sayings and actions of Jesus so that we can know him for ourselves and not have to hear about him secondhand. Last time we were in our study, we saw Jesus sending his disciples out in pairs for possibly a few weeks, possibly a few months to go and do ministry without him. They were going out without any type of supplies or provisions, and God was going to miraculously take care of them, and Jesus wanted to teach them about faith through that process. And in this study, we're going to pick up with the 12 disciples returning back to Jesus after this ministry assignment. Jesus is going to teach them another big lesson on faith, and then as he always does, he's going to immediately test them on the lesson like any good teacher would, and just like he does for each of us. So if you've ever longed to see God do extraordinary things in your life, if you've ever wished that you had some amazing God stories of your own, today you're going to learn some of the most important lessons in existence on how to see God do miracles in your life. It's going to be a great study. You're going to want to find Matthew 14, 28. Bookmark it somehow because we're going to flip there later on. And then once you've found that, you can flip over to Mark chapter 6, verse 30. To put this in context, we are joining the ministry of Jesus at its high point, at its zenith. This is the pinnacle of his ministry. He's enjoying massive popularity. He's not being followed by a few people. There are thousands gathering as soon as word spreads that Jesus is in any given location. The people are flocking to him. There's excitement, there's energy, there's momentum, there's everything that you would long to see in a ministry. And that's the vibe that's going on as we join our study today. Mark chapter 6, picking up in verse 30, it says this. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So there's so many people coming for ministry, they can't even take a break to eat. Jesus says, come away with me for a while to a place where there are no people and rest. So write this down. It's your first fill-in. When you've emptied yourself ministering to others, you need to be filled up again by receiving ministry from Jesus. When you've emptied yourself ministering to others, you need to be filled up again by receiving ministry from Jesus. One of the most surefire ways to burn out in ministry or loving other people, serving other people, is to exhaust yourself and never go and be refilled again by Jesus. If you minister on empty, it's a recipe for bitterness, labor and work instead of joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Every person who's going to minister to someone else needs to learn how to draw themselves away, rest, and be ministered to by Jesus. Ministering to others is different to almost any other type of activity because it can exhaust you physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It can pull you all the way to empty. Jesus knew that what his disciples needed wasn't just rest. They didn't just need a nap. They needed rest with him. They needed rest in him. And that's one of the reasons we gather together every week as the church is we're filled up. That's our desire here. We're ministered to so that we can be poured out during the week by ministering to others. Rinse and repeat. That's part of the purpose of the church. And so if you're pouring yourself out to other people and you're never getting ministered to, 
Something bad is going to happen. You're not going to be able to stay in that mode for very long. Jesus was also self-aware enough to know that he needed some time away. Jesus, don't forget, had just received the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded. His second cousin, one of his closest friends, he loved John dearly. Jesus would say John was the greatest among all the prophets who ever lived. And Jesus had just received the news that Herod Antipas had killed John the Baptist. He was processing that, so Jesus needed to be away as well. We'll continue in verse 32. It says, So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. From Luke and John's Gospels, we know that Jesus takes his disciples up a mountainside on the side of the Sea of Galilee. They just dock somewhere random near a city called Bethsaida, and they just walk up the mountainside a little bit and hang out. Bethsaida means house of provision, which is interesting. And they go there, and they're hanging out there. Verse 33, but the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. It doesn't mean everybody's a sprinter in Israel. There's just some young people in really good shape who were actually able to run around and wait for Jesus there sooner than others. And Jesus, when he came out, so when the boat lands, saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Now notice this. I have this underlined in my Bible. So what does he do when he sees these aimless people? So he began to teach them many things. Jesus doesn't cut short their little spiritual retreat out of a sense of duty or guilt. He doesn't go, oh, so tired, but I'm Jesus, kind of got to do this. It says he had compassion on them. He had compassion. I believe that this detail is here so that we would never become legalistic about our rest. And I've seen this sometimes. I see people who have burned themselves out in ministry or in a spiritual situation in life. They're worn out, and they say, I need to rest. But then when there's a need, it's like, I can't even deal with that need right now. I need to rest. And what we see in Jesus is he needed rest, but he was still being led by the Holy Spirit. This may sound shocking to you, but God may want to use you to minister to somebody even when you're on vacation. Even when you're on vacation. Even while the mojito is in your hand, it could still happen. I'm just saying, God might want to do something at any given moment in time. And Jesus, being led by the Holy Spirit, still has an openness to what God might want to do. From Jesus' perspective, these people needed teaching. They needed the Word of God more than anything else. And so that's what he gave them. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God, and Matthew's gospel tells us that he also healed their sick. So he goes to work healing people, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Verse 35, when the day was now far spent, it was now evening, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. I love Jesus. Verse 37, but he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Jesus is always doing things like this, provoking the disciples just a little bit and saying, will you feed them? John's gospel gives us this little detail. This he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus is doing a couple of things. One of the things I believe is Jesus is forcing his disciples to acknowledge the impossibility of the situation. It's almost like Jesus is saying, okay, when you answer, can you speak into the recorder, please? 
It's impossible, Jesus, a little bit louder. It's impossible, Jesus. So the setup for what's going to take place is Jesus is establishing the facts. He's saying, we all recognize that this is an impossible situation, right? Everybody got that? Okay, excellent. But there's also the principle here of Jesus saying, listen, if you can observe the need, many times God is going to equip you to meet the need that you observe as well. Not any one of us can solve world hunger. I understand that. But many times you look at somebody and you think, man, they sure look like they need a word of encouragement. Somebody should do that. Anyway, we walk away. (laughs) Jesus would say, will you feed them? You feed them. Man, that person's really hurting. Will you feed them? You feed them. I love the disciples' response because it's pure sarcasm. It says, and they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? 200 denarii would be about eight months' wages for a Roman soldier or or a laborer. So they're telling Jesus something like, oh, okay, Jesus, shall we go drop 30 grand for dinner for everybody? Is that what we should do? Okay, Jesus. So they're being sarcastic with him. And we're going to learn in a few verses that there were actually 5,000 men there. And did you catch that? 5,000 men. Because in Jewish culture, they only counted the men. So women and children would have been there as well. There could have easily been 10, 15, 20,000 people there. It's an impossible situation. Verse 38, but he, Jesus, said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. John's gospel tells us that Andrew, the apostle, went and found a boy who had presumably brought dinner with him. He has five small bread rolls and two fish that he's probably pre-cooked. And I love this little detail that Matthew's gospel has. It says, he, Jesus, said, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. And what a kingdom principle this is. Write this down. Ordinary things become extraordinary things when they're placed in the hands of an extraordinary God. Ordinary things become extraordinary things when they're placed in the hands of an extraordinary God. It's not about how much you have. It's about who's holding what you have. I would rather have a little in the hands of Jesus than a lot in my own hands. I'm limited. I'm limited. I can't work a miracle, but Jesus can. When we hold on to something, it has a limit. In our hands, it's five bread rolls and two fish. In the hands of Jesus, it has no limit. In Jesus' hands, it's not five bread rolls and two fish. It's, It's more than enough. It's more than enough. So whatever you're clinging to in your life, whatever you're keeping control over, it's limited. Some of us are waiting for a miracle in an area of our life. And we need to learn that miracles take place when instead of us desperately clinging to those things, we release them to Jesus. We release them to Jesus, into his hands. And stop clinging to them as though we can make a miracle happen on our own strength. So notice this too, write this down. Jesus is not interested in what we don't have but rather whether or not we'll trust him with what we do have. Jesus is not interested in what we don't have, but rather whether or not we'll trust him with what we do have. Jesus doesn't say, well, that's too bad, because, you know, if I had 10 bread rolls, then I could really do something. Just like he doesn't say, you know, it's, it's too bad that you come from a broken home. 
I probably could have done something if you didn't. He doesn't say, it's too bad your marriage is failing. Can't do anything about it anymore. Sorry, you're done. He doesn't say, if you had more useful talents, maybe if you were better with people, then I could really do something. Jesus is not interested in what we don't have. He's interested in whether or not we'll trust him with what we do have. Our job is not figuring out how he's going to do it. Our job is to give it all to him. That's our job. So let's see what happens when five bread rolls and two fish are placed in the hands of Jesus. Verse 39, then he commanded them, the disciples, to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and fifties. So just notice that Jesus is a God of order. There's a plan for everyone to be taken care of. He's not going to turn this into a survival of the fittest situation. There's always order in what Jesus does. It's not going to be one basket that begins pouring out bread and fish like a fountain and everyone goes nuts trying to get it. He just says, everybody calm down. There's enough for everybody. Verse 41, and when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. Then you're going to want to underline the next word. Blessed and, and then you'll want to underline broke. Blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he, demi- he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. You know, like you, I love hearing things like ordinary things become extraordinary things when they're placed in the hands of an extraordinary God. I love that. There's no downside to that, right? It's encouraging, and it's true. I don't really like to hear the truth that in between Jesus' blessing what was placed in his hands, and Jesus doing a miracle with what was placed in his hands was Jesus breaking what was placed in his hands. If we want Jesus to do miraculous things in our lives, he has to break our pride and our dependence on ourselves. He has to break those things before the miraculous can flow in our lives. Write this down. Between the blessing and the miracle, is a breaking. Between the blessing and the miracle is a breaking. And if you think this is difficult to hear, please remember that this was true for even Jesus himself. He was blessed and loved by his heavenly Father his whole life, his whole life. But Jesus came to the earth to do the miracle of miracles. He came to remove our collective sin everything we've ever done wrong, everything we ever will do. He came to die in our place to pour out his blood instead of ours so that we could become sons and daughters of God. The miracle of miracles. Jesus was broken so that we could become his miracle. Jesus was broken so that we could become his miracle. Between the blessing and the miracle is a breaking. Make a note of this. If you will elevate your spiritual needs above your practical needs, Jesus will meet both. If you will elevate your spiritual needs above your practical needs, Jesus will meet both. Jesus said as much when he said it like this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. We see this demonstrated here. The people stayed. They knew it was dinner time, but they were hungry to hear what Jesus had to say. They were elevating their spiritual need above their practical need. 
You know what else I know? I know that there were probably people there who slipped away and said, it's dinner time. This man might be Jesus Christ, but I'm hungry. What happened? They missed out on having their spiritual needs met. The people who stayed had their spiritual needs met and their practical needs met. If you have a choice between being the part of a church family or working an extra shift, choose Jesus. If you have a choice of skipping a meal so that you can have money to go to a Bible study and be encouraged, skip the meal. Choose Jesus. If you have to choose between unemployment or working a job where you have to compromise your faith as part of the job, choose Jesus. I don't say that because I don't understand the reality of money or food. I say that because I believe in faith that when you choose Jesus, he'll meet your practical needs as well. But I do know this. It never works the other way around. It never works the other way around. When you neglect your spiritual life and your spiritual needs for practical reasons, Jesus doesn't say, that's cool, I understand. We'll have a good relationship anyway. It only works in one direction. If you'll elevate your spiritual needs above your practical needs, Jesus will meet both. It's at this point in the story that the people had eaten until they were stuffed. The Greek word is just fattened, like a calf, like an animal. They had had as much as they wanted. John's gospel tells us, Jesus then tells the disciples, go and collect any leftovers. Each apostle gets a basket, which is interesting to me too, because how did each apostle even get a basket? They only had one basket to begin with, but suddenly now there's 12. So they've got 12 baskets, and they go around, and they pick up all the leftovers. Verse 43 Take a look again how many baskets that is. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. By my math, that's one basket per disciple. When it's all said and done, each disciple is left holding a basket full of food, more than they even began with, holding it in their hands, a miracle of God in their own hands. And you would think that would have a pretty profound effect on their faith. We'll find out it actually didn't. It didn't. But I think there's another lesson here too, and it's a lesson for all disciples of Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus' solution to this problem is not transferring resources. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to do a miracle here. I'm going to divide this one fish into 20,000 extremely tiny pieces of fish, and that's going to be the miracle. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't go and tell everybody, go get all the food from your house and bring it here until we have enough. His solution is not transferring resources. It wasn't dividing resources so everybody gets a teeny tiny little bit. It wasn't the people eating instead of the boy who brought the food. And it wasn't the people eating at the expense of the disciples either. No. Jesus' solution was an abundance of resources. Write that down. Jesus' solution was an abundance of resources. Jesus wants to do more. He wants to do more. You know, a better prayer than God helped me to financially support Christians being persecuted in Iraq. A better prayer is, God, I'm going to give to that. Lord, would you increase my income so I can give more and more and more? How many of you know that's a better prayer? That's a better prayer than acting like there's a limited, finite amount, and the only way for us to do anything good for God is for somebody somewhere to make do with less. That's not how God operates. He says, listen, there's a better solution. It's just multiplication. How about I just do more? Just more. 
And that's the God that we serve. John's gospel tells us about the crowd's response to this incredible miracle. I'll read it to you. It says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the Messiah, nope, the prophet who has come into the world. So once again, they believe that Jesus is the second coming of Elijah because there was this Old Testament prophecy saying that Elijah was going to return before the Messiah came. As we talked about last week, Jesus will explain later on in his ministry, that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. He had a similar ministry to Elijah. He prepared the way for Jesus, the Messiah, but these people didn't get that. They didn't believe that. So they said, I think this guy might be Elijah, but not the Messiah. They still didn't get it. And what did they want a powerful prophet to do for them? John's gospel tells us, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, what's going on here is the people are not most excited about what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. They're most excited like, dude, we got like a super Jew here. This guy can do anything, and he's on our side. And they're in Israel. It's occupied by the Romans right now. So they're not listening when Jesus talks about the kingdom. All they're thinking is, with this guy on our side, we could totally overthrow the Romans. So Jesus can sort of read their collective minds, and he understands they're about to grab him, throw him on their shoulders, charge down to Jerusalem, because they're like, man, if we just have this guy with us, we're going to win. We're going to overthrow the Romans. They don't understand that Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Romans. He came to die for them and for everybody else. So this is what he does next, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. I know it's a little confusing, but this is actually a different Bethsaida on the other side of the lake. They're on alternate sides while he sent the multitude away. So Jesus tells his disciples, go on ahead of me, I'll catch up later. Jesus still needed to recharge and get some time alone with the Father. He hadn't forgotten that. Verse 46, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Jesus is on the mountainside, the disciples are in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Then he, Jesus, saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. So they're in the middle of the lake. They're straining to row. There's a storm whipping up. Remember the last time the disciples were in a boat, they were in a storm? That time Jesus was in the boat with them. This time Jesus has ramped up the challenge. He's not in the boat with them this time. But remember last time they freaked out? They kept saying over and over again, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. This time they're like, just shut up and keep rowing. And they're still rowing. Storm's going on, they're rowing. And I like that because that's growth. They're still probably terrified out of their minds, but this time they're just going to shut up and keep rowing because they're like, Jesus is just going to tell us off if we freak out. He's going to like appear out of nowhere or something. So just keep rowing, keep rowing. And by the way, this is a picture of what Jesus is doing for us right now. The Bible says he is in the presence of the Father in heaven. He is on the mountain praying for us right now while we are in the storms of this earthly life. He's doing the same thing for us right now. So while they're struggling in this storm, get the picture. Jesus is on the mountainside. He can see them, and he is praying, Father, fill them with faith. He's praying for the disciples while they're in the middle of the storm. Father, Fill them with your strength. Father, sustain them. He's interceding. He's praying for them while they're in the middle of the storm. 
It says, now about the fourth watch of the night, that's between three and six in the morning. (laughs) The next sentence is just unbelievable. He came to them, walking on the sea, and then even more ridiculous, and would have passed them by. So I find this hilarious. So so in Jesus' mind, it's like, well, what's the shortest way from here to there? I'll just walk across the water. And he's planning on passing them by. So the idea is he would have just kept walking and gone, boys, and just sort of kept walking across the lake. That's what he was planning on doing. It says, and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were, understatement of the century, troubled. You think? The only thing more disturbing probably than thinking you're seeing a ghost is when the other 11 guys in the boat are seeing him too at the same time. They are freaking out because they're seeing this guy walking on the water and they're all seeing it at the same time. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. I love this. When Jesus says it is I, what he's saying in the original language is I am. I am. Saying be of good cheer. I am. I love the fact that Jesus' very name, the name of God, announces truths along with it. Because when he says, I am, he's saying, I'm limitless, I'm everything, I am. I'm in charge of this storm. I'm in authority over everything. Your lives are in my hands. I am in control of all of this. Be of good cheer. I am. Now we're going to flip over to Matthew 14 if you'd flip back for a few verses because Matthew's gospel contains part of the story that the other accounts are missing. And it's way too good to skip. Matthew 14, verse 28. It says this, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Don't you love Peter's attitude while everyone else is freaking out? This is the thought that comes into the mind of Peter. This is where his mind goes. In a crazy moment, he says, whoa, whoa. Okay, something's going on here. There's an opportunity here. Tell me to come out to you. That would not be what would run through my mind in that situation. Not at all. But I want us to notice something important here. Peter doesn't just step out the boat and try to walk on water. What does he do first? He asks Jesus, command me to come to you on the water. You see, Peter understands that if he's obeying Jesus, then anything is possible. He understands that if Jesus is calling him to do something, it's possible for him to do it. But he understands, I can't just step out of this boat without Jesus telling me to. I'm just going to sink straight to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. So he says to Jesus, command me to come to you. Write this down, and we're going to unpack it a bit. Don't try to walk on water unless Jesus has specifically called you to. Don't try to walk on water unless Jesus has specifically called you to. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's great advice, Jeff. Next time I have the urge to walk on water, I'll remember this incredibly helpful message, and I won't make that foolish error. Here's what I mean. I've seen way too many believers take what they believed were steps of faith and start businesses in areas they knew nothing about mortgaging their house to start it, or quit a job before they had another job lined up, or do any number of crazy things in the name of faith without clearly hearing from the Lord that it was what he wanted them to do. This is good pastoral counsel right here. 
Faith is not an excuse to make really stupid decisions and then expect God to bail you out. Faith is not an excuse to make really stupid decisions and then expect God to bail you out. That's why Peter doesn't just jump out the boat. Ah, he would have sunk. And Jesus is saying, I didn't, I didn't tell you to get out of the boat. That's why he says, tell me to get out of the boat, Jesus. Stepping out of a boat in the middle of a life-threatening storm is stupid. It's really stupid, unless, unless Jesus has specifically called you to do it. And if he has, then stepping out of the boat in the middle of the storm is the most logical, rational decision you could make. And being on the water with Jesus is the safest, most secure place you could be anywhere on earth. Don't try to walk on water unless Jesus has called you to. Make sure you're prayed up. Make sure you've fasted. Make sure you've received confirmation from the word and other mature believers. Mature believers, okay? Then you can step out in confidence. Then you can step out in confidence. So I picture Jesus just getting this huge smile on his face when Peter yells that to him. And I say that because I can't imagine many things would have blessed the heart of Jesus more than Peter in the boat saying, essentially, I believe that if you tell me to come to you, I'll be able to come to you. That must have put this huge smile on the face of Jesus. So with this big grin, I think, Jesus says, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, underline this in your Bibles, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Before we even think about getting down on Peter for doubting, let me ask the room. Anybody here ever walked on water? Even for a little bit? How many of you know that if you get together with your small group and you say, what did you do this week? If you're able to say in honesty, well, I walked on water for a bit. That's a good week of faith. That's a really, really good week of faith. But then I doubted and I fell. Oh, I was impressed for a second. He still walked on water for a while. And this is a lesson that practically teaches itself. Any of you could share the same thing I'm about to share. As long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, his faith stayed strong, and he walked across the water. When he took his eyes off Jesus and began looking around, he became terrified, full of fear and doubt. That made his faith falter, and he began to sink. It's no different for us. In this situation, Jesus was more real and relevant than anything else going on around Peter. I think if Peter had asked Jesus, do you see all the waves around us? Do you see what's going on? Jesus would have responded, they're irrelevant, Peter. They are irrelevant. The only thing that matters here is you and me. It's the only thing that matters. If you are discouraged today, if you are fearful, if you feel hopeless, if you feel terrified here's what i know about you you are looking at everything going on around you taking inventory of the storm noting the speed of the wind the height and depth of the waves the darkness of the skies and you're not looking only at jesus and i don't say that in judgment that's just the truth it's how it works it happens to me all the time that's why I can't sing the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, without choking up. 
The words are so true. The words just say, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is a profound truth. Whatever storm you're in right now, I believe what Jesus would say to you is the storm is irrelevant. Everything else is irrelevant. The only thing that matters here is you and me. Keep your eyes on me. The size of the storm is irrelevant. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I don't think Jesus is saying this in a tone of condemnation. I think he's saying this like a dad watching their kid learn to ride a bike. And your kid rides it and they get it and they have it. And they're like, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And then suddenly they go, oh my gosh, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And they bail, and they bail. They just freak out. And you go up to them as a dad and you would say, well, why did you stop pedaling? You had it, you were doing it, you were doing it. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. He says, you little faith, why did you doubt? Like you were doing it. We're 20 feet from the boat. I don't think he's condemning Peter at all. Write this down. Peter's miracle was waiting for him outside the boat. Peter's miracle was waiting for him outside the boat. Everybody else in the boat, they got to see Jesus. They got to witness the miracle. But only Peter got to experience the miracle firsthand because he was the only one who would get out of the boat. We've talked about this before. The only way to receive a miracle is to find yourself in a situation where your only hope is a miracle. That's why it's called a miracle, because there seems to be no hope. And a tragic percentage of believers are unwilling to ever put themselves in a situation where only God's provision, a miracle from him, will save them. For a tragic percentage of believers, the greatest step of faith they'll ever take in their spiritual walk with Jesus is getting saved. For far too many believers, that's the high point. That's the high point of faith. I'm believing in Jesus to save me. What Jesus would say is this, that's just the beginning. That's the beginning. That's the first step in the ladder. I want to do miracles in your life. But you got to be willing to let him lead you outside the boat in the middle of the storm. That's where the miracle is. That's where the miracle is. The miracle that you're looking for, the miracles you long to see in your life are not waiting for you in the place of safety and security. Because when you're in the place of safety and security, you have no need of a miracle. Is your faith growing? Is it greater today than it was five years ago? Is it greater today than it was a year ago? Those are good questions to ask ourselves. Because if your faith isn't growing, here's what I know. There's probably an area God's called you to trust him in, and you haven't done that yet. Faith builds upon faith. Don't stay in one place. Write this down. Why would anybody leave the safety and security of a boat in the middle of a storm? The answer, to be where Jesus is. To be where Jesus is. I wish that you and I grew closer to Jesus in times of comfort and security. I wish that what happened in us is that we would say, you know what, there's no stress right now. All my needs are being met. My relationships are awesome. This is the time to press into Jesus with urgency and desperation. 
never happens that way. What we say is we're like, everything's good. Uh, don't really need Jesus as much. Maybe, maybe I'll just check in, little hat tip to him. Make sure, you know, we keep contact every now and then. But there's no desperation. There's no urgency. When the crisis hits, when the storm hits, man, intimacy with Jesus. It's easy when you're desperate. It's easy when you're desperate. So part of growing up as a believer is reaching the point when the storm hits where you stop saying, why me? You stop saying, why does God hate me? What did I do wrong? As though it's a punishment. Part of becoming mature in Jesus is recognizing, guess this is just the next storm. Guess this is the next level of faith. Guess this is my next opportunity to draw closer to Jesus. I always know that I'm talking to a mature believer when I'm talking with them about the last crisis they went through in their life. And they talk about how difficult it is. And with almost 100% consistency, they throw out this one little thing. And it usually goes something like this. But that time in my life brought me closer to Jesus than I've ever been. I've heard multiple mature believers say, I miss that. I miss the closeness I had with Jesus in the middle of that. And it was hell to go through. But Jesus was right there. And there's that little part of them that says, I would almost be willing to go through that again just to be that close to Jesus again. The mature believer stops saying, why me? Why me? And instead says, okay, God, invitation accepted. Invitation accepted. And presses into Jesus. The goal of life is not safety and security. Understand this, the goal of life is not safety and security. It's not to make sure that you have all your ducks in a row so that you will never be affected ever by a market crash or by sickness or death. You can go out of your mind with paranoia, trying to cover all the bases. And just when you think you have, I guarantee there's something you haven't thought about. You can have everything set up in a row and you realize you could grab the wrong handrail that somebody sneezed on. That's <laughs> all over, just like that. The purpose of life is not safety and security. The purpose of life, the goal of life is Jesus. It's Jesus. That's why believers do crazy things like get out of boats in the middle of the storm because the goal is Jesus. If the goal is safety and security, just stay in the boat. Just stay in the boat. You'll never have a miracle. But when you realize that the goal is not safety and security, the goal is Jesus, then you become a dangerous Christian, a very dangerous Christian. Did you notice that even when Peter faltered, Jesus was there to lift him out of the water? The last thing Peter heard in his earthly life was not, oh, you sure screwed that up. That's not the last thing Peter heard. Jesus was there to lift him out of the water. And I like this too, because you always see the paintings of Jesus, you know, and he's like the wimpy Jesus doing this. Jesus is like a craftsman, so he's cut. He's a strong guy. He pulls Peter out of the water with one hand, with one hand. I like that. Jesus isn't like, uh, uh, guys, guys, good. sorry, Peter. It's not what happens. <laughs> he just lifts him up with one hand. Jesus is strong enough to lift you up even when you begin to sink. He's not going to let you go. Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. 
I'm going to ask you to flip back to Mark now. We'll flip back to Mark chapter 6, pick it up in verse 51. It says, then he went up into the boat to them. Jesus climbs into the boat and the wind ceased. Another miracle. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Now pay attention here because they're marveling more than you think they are. Verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. They didn't get it. Even when they were holding the bread baskets, they didn't go, wait a minute. I think something might be going on. They didn't click because their hearts were hard. Write this down. A hard heart is incapable of understanding that Jesus is God, no matter how great the evidence. A hard heart is incapable of understanding that Jesus is God, no matter how great the evidence. Jesus in the flesh, turning five bread rolls and two fish into enough food for 10, 15, 20,000 people, not enough evidence to convince the person with a hard heart that he's God. It's not enough. Thankfully, the disciples now get it. Truly, you are the Son of God. And this is one of those accounts in the Bible where non-believers love to say, do you really believe that Jesus walked on water? Come on, come on. To any non-believer, I would say, please understand, we don't believe that Jesus is God because he walked on water. We believe that because Jesus is God, it's no big thing for him to walk on water. And that's a very, very different perspective. Once you come to understand that Jesus was and is God, nothing else is a problem. It's been well said, if you're okay with Genesis 1-1, you'll be okay with the rest of the book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can agree with that, the rest of the Bible won't be a problem. But you are wasting your time trying to convince someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is God that Jesus walked on water. It's a waste of time. The discussion you need to have is Jesus is God. Because he's God, we don't have a problem believing any of the miracles. John's gospel mentions one more miracle. It's just too cool. The gospel accounts say they were in the middle of the lake when this all happened. It says in John's gospel, then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So they went from being in the middle of the Sea of Galilee to the exact location they had set out for immediately. It was a miracle. The entire boat and all the men in it teleported. That's just cool. That's just cool. So they go, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. And they bow before him, I would assume, and they lift up their heads, and they're there at the exact spot that they set out to go to, the exact place they needed to be. And I love that. Through all of this, through the storm, through the test, through the miracles, the disciples still ended up exactly where they needed to be. Jesus didn't take them through a huge faith test just as a big waste of time. He made up for that lost time. He made up for that lost time. And he does the same for us. You might be thinking, why is this taking so long? Why can't I just be married already? Why can't I be promoted? Why can't my business have that breakthrough? Why, why, why? It's probably because between the blessing and the miracle, Jesus needs to do some breaking. And just like the disciples, if you'll embrace the process, the moment will come when you will say, how did I get here? 
Wasn't I just in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a lake? And you'll find that through all of that, God has led you exactly to the place where you need to be. The place where the desires of your heart that he has given you are fulfilled. And you'll suddenly go, how did I get here? My life was in crisis a month ago and it's, it's all coming together all of a sudden. One other point of interest. This is just a really interesting side note. All of the disciples think Jesus is a ghost. The actual word in the original language there is phantom. They think he's a phantom. That means that they had a cultural paradigm, a cultural concept of ghosts. They had an idea, a spirit walking the earth. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't use this as an opportunity in Scripture to say to them, silly disciples, there's no such thing as ghosts. Instead, Jesus says, it's me. I am. And this won't even be the last time that Jesus is mistaken for a ghost by his disciples. And when it happens again, Jesus won't use that opportunity either to debunk the existence of ghosts. We don't want to get sidetracked, but for those of you who just want to do a little bit of investigation, I encourage you to dig a little bit deeper. Some of you know the story. When they think he's a ghost again, Jesus actually proves to them he's not a ghost by eating food. And there's a commentary under there about something you might want to explore. Can you imagine, though, being in that boat when Jesus climbs back in with Peter? Can you imagine being in his presence as they get in and they, they just say nothing until they're able to say, you are the Son of God. You are. They've just witnessed this incredible thing. I would give anything to have that moment in the boat with Jesus, right there where you can touch him, you can worship him face to face. And I love the truth that one day we'll get to do that. One day we'll get to do that. We'll get to stand right in front of him and say, truly you are the son of God. He'll be there to embrace, he'll be there to worship. It's gonna be amazing. Wrapping up verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So the miracle that happened a while ago with the woman who had the issue of blood who touched the hem of Jesus' garment, that had apparently spread through the rumor mill and now people were believing that if they just touched the bottom of Jesus' cloak, they would be healed. It's really bad, wacky theology, but they still have faith in Jesus. And they're healed because of that. Jesus' ministry is in high gear, but still only the apostles understand that he's God. Only the apostles understand he's God. I think it's pretty funny that there's no other account of the apostles, the disciples, running into another storm on the Sea of Galilee after this. I'm pretty sure that's because next time night is about to fall and Jesus says, just row across the lake. They're like, nope, not going to do it. How about we just stay here for the night and go tomorrow morning? Let's do that, Jesus. Jesus is like, no, set off. I'll meet you on the other side. Not going to happen. Have a good night, Jesus. So write this down. It's your last fill-in. The difference between your moment of greatest fear and your moment of greatest faith is where you choose to look. The difference between your moment of greatest fear and greatest faith is where you choose to look. If you are looking at the storm all around you, fear will 
rule you. It will dominate you. If everything stays the same, the storm is still there, but you turn your eyes upon Jesus, you will be ruled by faith. Where you focus changes everything. Some of you think you're about to face your greatest defeat, but Jesus really wants this to be your hour of greatest victory. Some of you think you're about to go under the waves, but Jesus wants you to experience what it's like to walk on water. And the only difference is going to be where you choose to look, at the storm or at Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I feel like there's almost too many points in what we've read today to summarize them all again, but here's what I believe. I believe the Holy Spirit has impressed something on each of our hearts this morning as we've studied His Word together. So respond to what the Holy Spirit is impressing on your heart this morning. Respond to Him. He loves you. He loves you. He's not going to let you go. If you feel like you're going under, you just need to know that His hand is coming for you to lift you up. He's not going to let you go out like that. He's with you. He wants to do something miraculous in your life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first opportunity I want to give is always for anyone here who would say, I've never experienced the greatest miracle of them all, me coming into the family of God. If you know that, that you've never come to Jesus and said, I need you to save me, I need you to erase this division between you and me, I need your forgiveness. If you've never said, Jesus, I want to be a part of that miracle. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. But today, even though you can't explain it, you might not even fully understand it, you know that God is calling you to respond to him and you want to begin a relationship with him. I'm going to ask you to do two things. I'm going to ask you to mark that on the back of your connection card before you turn it in today. And I'm going to ask you to come and pray with me after the service. For the rest of us, let me just pray for us. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to continue the work this morning that you have begun through your word. I believe in faith you are impressing something on the hearts of every single person in this room today. For every single one of us, there was something we read in your word that is just burning in our heart right now. Something we need to change, something we needed to hear again, something we needed to be reminded of. Father, I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that none of us would be stagnant in our walk with you, that we would take those greater steps of faith. God, we don't want to get to heaven one day and find out that we could have walked on water if we had trusted you enough to just get out the boat. I pray for every single one of us right now who have had a distinct calling from you, a specific instruction where you said, come, get out the boat and come over to me. In the name of Jesus, would you release faith into every heart this morning, God? Faith to please you. Faith to believe that safety and security is not the goal of life. You are the goal, God. You're what we want. And if we have to go through the storm to get you, we will take that trade off any day. Any day. You're worth more than anything. Help us to just keep saying yes to you, God. Pray for strength in the name of Jesus where it's needed this morning. You just be still before the Lord. Allow the Holy Spirit to continue ministering to you. Speak to him. Pray 